Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Nolan is standing by. Hey, Wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. You know, I swear, when I recorded the opening monologue to last week's Bruce Exclusive, I did not know it was going to become so salient so quickly. If you have not done so, go back and listen to that one. I specifically wanted to have that conversation coming off of a good win because I was worried that if we had that same conversation coming off a bad loss, it wouldn't quite be as well received. Well, then it became salient almost immediately. The conversation that we had in the opening monologue was about whether the media and content creators hold the team accountable. And I opined and got on my soapbox and said, no, they don't hold the team accountable. Fans could hold the team accountable if they stopped consuming the product in large enough quantities, but they don't because brand loyalty. And I said that the thing that really holds teams accountable is the owner's sense of embarrassment. That's the thing that holds the team accountable when things aren't going well. And sure enough, after the Buffalo Bills got lambasted by the Indianapolis Colts last Sunday, The familiar refrain, hold the team accountable, standards, integrity. The media needs to ask the tough questions. This is a cupcake team. They're soft. They need those tough questions. And I realized after listening to this, that hold them accountable really just means say what I'm feeling. That's what it means. I want you to say what I'm feeling in the manner in which I'm feeling it. I'm angry and screaming. I want you to be angry and screaming. I want company in this moment that I'm feeling. But there's no correlation between media markets who are more aggressive in press conferences and team success. You're just mad and don't like it when someone else isn't screaming the way that you are Because that juxtaposition between your anger and their calmness highlights how unreasonable you're being and it makes you uncomfortable. That's why. Because you don't actually think it'll fix anything because you have no evidence that media yelling at people in press conferences is going to actually fix anything. You have zero evidence of that ever being true. There is no evidence. There's no correlation. So... Because there's no correlation, because there's no evidence it's actually going to help anything, then the only reason that you want to see it, you want to see someone else yelling at your team, is because you want someone else to be as mad as you are. Because then it justifies the way you're feeling. Well, yes, I'm being unreasonable and I'm yelling obscenities at people on social media, but you know what? They are too, so it's okay. You don't want accountability. You want justification. You want someone to excuse the fact that you're screaming at people and calling them names on social media and can't control yourself 
well, I just can't take this homerism. I can't take these homers. Let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about in-season criticism and homerisms. So right now, what has happened is that the chef is trying to prepare the perfect meal for every weekly dinner guest. The food that he has at his disposal is already set. Frequently, there is not a mid-season adjustment that can be made to fix anything that ails a team because you were limited to what you have to work with at that time. If that was the case, then no teams who have reasonable coaching staffs would ever end the season anything less than perfect because everything can be accounted for, right? Everything can be adjusted for, right? Wrong. Because here's what we do. In the off season, the person who's buying the groceries we think can do no wrong. Every re-signing is amazing. Every signing is amazing. Every draft pick is amazing. And if you don't think so, then you think you know more than the team. That's what we do in the offseason. And then when the season rolls around and it turns out none of that stuff was true and maybe signings weren't good and maybe draft picks weren't right, then we want to blame the coach for not making the appropriate responses and adjustments with the groceries that he has. We overstate how perfectly and flawlessly stocked the fridge is in the offseason. And then when the meal isn't great every week, then we get mad at the cook. Do you remember the this team has no holes conversation from this past offseason? What a load of baloney that was. It was baloney then. It's baloney now. Now I kind of want baloney. But the time for these discussions, the time for... Man, Vernon Butler's not playing really well. Maybe he shouldn't be a meaningful part of the rotation. The time for that conversation was in the offseason when the Bills cut Quentin Jefferson, restructured Vernon Butler, and I said I didn't really like that, and I got lambasted on Twitter. You think you know more than the team? The time when I said on this podcast multiple times in the offseason that we were hoping to have one reasonable starting one technique. We were hoping that star would come back. Hope, that's it. Because Harrison Phillips hasn't proven to be a good one technique in this league. Vernon Butler, we don't trust playing one technique well. So we were hoping to get one. I said it was the worst position group on the team. But no matter what the team does in the offseason, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. So we don't want to be critical at the times when we should be critical. And then when we want to be critical, there's nothing the people we want to be critical at can do about it. Because the fridge is stocked. The players are out there. There aren't a lot of street free agents out there who are going to come in and make a significant impact on this team. If you look at the trade deadline, none of the people who were traded at the trade deadline would have prevented what you are seeing from the Buffalo Bills right now. The time for this discussion was during team building, off-season, roster management season. But during that time, we're busy in this rose-colored fog where everything the team does is amazing. We don't want to be critical then, and we're overly critical now. We are swinging pendulum back and forth. In the off-season, team can do no wrong. In the regular season, they lose a couple games. They can do no right. But we're directing the wrong criticism and the wrong energy at the wrong person at the wrong time. There was a time for concern and criticism about certain sections of this team. That time was the offseason. That was the time to have that conversation. The proper direction of that dissatisfaction was Brandon Bean. So we've got the criticism time wrong and we got the criticism direction wrong. The criticism time was during the off season. The criticism direction was at Bean. But instead, we want to do criticism at McDermott now for not having the horses. If every issue could be solved with a quick turn of a little knob here and a little knob there when it comes to scheme then every team would be perfect 
at the end of the year as long as they had competent coaching. But that's not true. Because every team has flaws from a personnel standpoint. Every team has holes. This is why I railed so hard against the concept that this team was good enough and didn't have holes so that they could draft a running back in the first round. I said, there is no such thing as a team without holes. Did the entire podcast on needs doesn't just mean now. Needs in the future. Needs on the offensive line. Needs at wide receiver. All the things we talked about were specifically because there's no such thing as a flawless team. So now we are seeing this play out that the team was indeed flawed. And the only reason I start this conversation with this particular monologue is because we demand that our team, our coaches, and our players learn from losses. So let's do it too. Right now, McDermott has the players he's going to have. So as we start to lament some of the things that were or were not done this past offseason, let's not forget that when this upcoming offseason occurs. Let's not go through this cycle again. Let's get to this upcoming offseason. And when that offseason occurs, let's not spend the entirety of the offseason in some sort of pink rose-colored fog where every single thing that the team does is the best thing in the world. That's proven to not be the case. And if I were to make a criticism to Brandon Bean for this past offseason, and I was trying to sum it up based on what we've seen play out thus far in the 2021 season, it was he assumed a lot. You know what they say about assuming. But let me take you down the list. I think that the team assumed John Feliciano would be better when he was healthy because he struggled with the injury last year, was fighting through a lot of stuff. I think the team assumed that Cody Ford would be a reasonable starting guard, even though we had never seen a stretch of good play from Cody Ford in his entire career, ever, to that point. I think they assumed Starr would come back and be a good player again. And he was. That one they got right. I think they assumed that Harrison Phillips, one more year removed from his ACL injury, would take a step forward, and he didn't. I think the assumption of improvement doesn't just apply to fans. So if I'm going to lob a criticism at Brandon Bean for this offseason, if I were to lob a criticism that I think is causing the Bills to partly be in the situation they're in now, it would be that. I think a lot of assumptions were made about the improvements they were going to get from certain players. And it didn't pan out. And I think we can learn from this. That's my big takeaway. My big takeaway is let's not assume that you're always going to see development from every single player. Let's not find reasons why they haven't developed and haven't apply 100% of the time. It might apply in some cases. But sometimes... The player you got is the player you got. And they're not going to take a step forward. And then you have to decide if that player at the level they're currently playing at is a hindrance to this team. Is it going to hold the team back from being what they want to be on offense, defense, special teams? So in the event you think that the opening to this monologue meant that I was going to spend the entire time defending every decision that the team has ever made, then you probably haven't listened to this podcast before. Because I'm not. But I think it's important that the appropriate criticism be placed at the appropriate person's feet at the appropriate time. And sometimes we just get mad and we miss out on the opportunity to learn. We miss out on the opportunity to actually evolve as a fan base, evolve as an individual fan. I am very excited for the remainder of today's show. The reason I'm very excited about the remainder of today's show is I have a special treat. My dog's ears certainly just perked up when I said that word. Steve Mathis and Dave Tilton and myself have known each other for a very long time. Years even. We came into the content creation community at roughly the same time. They ended up 
going with a different network. I ended up coming on to Buffalo Rumblings. We've stayed in touch. But now they do the pregame show at Cover One. And I wanted an opportunity to get them on the show because I never had both of them at the same time. And I wanted to chat with them a little bit because they do great work. I've been given a lot of really, really strong Bruce opinions recently. And I wanted you to hear from somebody else. So I'm going to ask them some questions about the loss, about the state of the team, about what they think. I already gave you some of my opinions earlier. Now you're going to hear from opinions that I have no idea what they're going to be. At the time I'm recording this, I haven't asked them those questions yet. But you'll get somebody else's opinion on this scenario. Because I think it's really important when the team is feeling bad, when the fan base is feeling bad, that you get multiple opinions that you get different voices in the room. So I'm going to do that. But first, we're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to come back. We're going to talk to Steve Mathis and Dave Tilton from the Air Raid Hour on Cover One. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smart Water Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. I feel like before the break, we got a little morbid. It was a little bit heavy. But you know what? Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. I'm Demi Lovato right now. I am sorry, not sorry. I am rolling up the window while I'm winking at you and giving a smile with soap written on the window that says, sorry, not sorry, with a smiley face. That's where I'm at right now. Because we've got some stuff to talk about. But... In the interest of not beating you and berating you over the head with the exact same thing every single week while the Bills find themselves in this slump, I said, you know, I think the timing is appropriate now to have on a guest. And you know, I never have in-season guests. Never. That's just not a thing we do on the Bruce Exclusive. However, exceptions must be made. Exceptions must be made. And rules were meant to be broken. And I have with me Steve Mathis, David Tilton. I have the Air Raid Hour, the pregame show, the weekly show on the Cover One podcast and vidcast networks. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in a wonderful Bruce exclusive welcome. First off, Steve, how you doing, dude? Hey, I'm doing great. I really appreciate that that Demi Lovato reference. My wife made me watch uh, Camp Rock last night, ironically, because for the first time, I've never seen it before. And uh, I'll tell you what, I don't know what was worse. Uh, the Bills defensive line play on Sunday or the acting in that movie? <laughs> it, it, it's something, isn't it? It's something. Um, you know, the Jonas Brothers, who, of course, obviously were in, were in that movie. The Jonas Brothers were a subject of a reality series that my wife liked to watch called Married to Jonas, which is about one of the Jonas Brothers and specifically his wife as a quote unquote normal person being married into such a family like the Jonas Brothers. And that was... Um, Interesting. Mr. Tilton, do you have anything to, to take my mind off of reality TV and, and, and Demi Lovato and the Jonas Brothers? Well, I was going to actually make a uh, make a confession here because you talk about Demi Lovato. Um, I am kind of a a sucker for diva pop, man. I, I, I am. What can I say? Like, I am. I like I like some diva pop every now and again in my life. I'm into Dua Lipa, Ava Max, Demi Lovato. I can, I can get into all of it. So. Uh, Demi Lovato has found her way into my Apple uh, music library, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. I'm really not. You shouldn't be. 
The fact that I was able to make the sorry, not sorry reference is because I'm incredibly cheap. Okay. So everyone who knows me knows that I'm incredibly cheap. All four of the people who know me know this. And the thing that's interesting to me is that, that the way that I go about collecting music is I will find it on YouTube and I will like it. So it's in my liked videos. That's my method of acquiring music. So I have 1,017 liked videos on YouTube and those are the, my go-to songs. And so when I want to listen to songs, I just go to the YouTube and turn it on and put it through the Bluetooth in my car and that's it. That's what I do. So that's my... Is it, uh, is it awkward when an episode of the Air Raid Hour slips in every once in a while in between D, uh, Demi Lovato songs? No, it's like, no, it's not. Not only is it not <laughs> awkward, it's a little bit like when you get that bonus fry when you order onion rings and there's like a bonus fry in there or you order a fry and there's a bonus onion ring in there. That's mm. kind of what it is when you stumble across the air raid hour. So thank you guys so much for being a part of this. The monologue before the commercial break to you guys was a little rambunctious. Isn't the right word I want to use. It was a little bit, uh, I want to go with strong. It was strong. And now it's time to get opinions of people who aren't Bruce. And I want to start with this. The Was this the worst loss of the Sean McDermott era? That question has been thrown around a lot. But I want to ask you specifically this. When was the last time you think Bill's Mafia felt this bad after a loss? Tilton, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, different era. But let me tell you how, and I'm going to use a personal, my personal feeling, right? This is this is the worst I felt after a loss um, outside of this game. And... Mm -hmm. I'm going to kind of exclude the AFC championship game from contention here because that was that was painful. I'm not going to lie, but I'm kind of putting it into context of the fact that we were in the AFC championship game. So there is some silver lining to that. I will tell you the worst I've felt s since this loss was the Monday night debacle, Dallas at Buffalo, Bills, huge underdogs, Dallas running away with the NFC East and leaders in the NFC at the time, Tony Romo, uh, Terrell Owens was on the, on the Cowboys. We had no chance in that game. And what do we do? We come out, we get the George Wilson pick six. Steve knows it's one of his favorite players from the drought era. We get the Chris Kelsey tipped interception pick six. Dallas starts climbing their way back into the game. And then what happens? Terrence McGee returns a kickoff return for a touchdown. And we're like, okay, this is going to happen. But sure enough, the Bills fold down the stretch in that game. They give up the late touchdown. And by the way, then stop the two-point conversion that would have tied the game only to give up an onside kick and then have Nick Folk kick the dagger into our hearts as time expires and we have to see Jerry Jones celebrate. Not only was it because it was Dallas and we had obviously lost to them twice in the Super Bowl, not only was it because it was a huge underdog story, but it was also Monday night football. So everyone was watching that honestly was the worst I've felt in a bills game, probably in the last 10 years, that Dallas Monday night game. Yeah. I went kind of a different route here. I, uh, I just went with the Jaguars game. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last um, two, worst you I'm felt in two weeks. <laughs> I'm like, maybe it's because I'm the one who runs the air raid Twitter account and I'm the one who has to respond to people in the mentions of, of the various different tweets we send out. But I mean, if you look at it, during the bills games this year it's it's almost like the bills fans at least on social media have object permanence like the second that one game is uh over and a new game has happened the previous game before that doesn't exist anymore and the only thing that matters is that game that was played after the jacksonville game it was like well we're never going to be able to uh, win a super bowl if we can only score six points against the jaguars or after the tennessee game like there's no way we can possibly win the super bowl because we're going to run into tennessee in the playoffs and they have our number after the steelers game it was like well all the teams that we face in the playoffs are going to have a player just like cam hayward there's no way we can win the super bowl like every single loss that the buffalo bills have this year everyone just wants to pick apart the flaws and they also just sort of forget about all the good things and the positive things that have happened so far and i it's just something that you see on social media just like that's what gets the clicks the rants the stephen a smith's going crazy the toxicity like that's what fuels people and drives people to social media so I don't know. Maybe that was a it was a bad choice. But I'm just gonna go with the Jacksonville game because to me, uh, I thought the reaction was pretty similar between the the two losses. Now I'm gonna go a little off script here, but do you think the Super Bowl or bust mentality that Bills Mafia had coming in is what's causing 
all of those losses to feel so much worse than the equivalent losses would have felt in a different year? Is it because they came into this year and they said Super Bowl or bust, and then everything is viewed through the Super Bowl or bust lens? Everything is Super Bowl or bust. Therefore, all the losses inform the ability to win the Super Bowl. And every time the ability to win the Super Bowl is diminished in our eyes, we start to feel busty. Is that what's happening? I I think so. And this is why. I think because we have seen such a linear progression, notably with Josh Allen, right? And since McDermott got here, there's been a very linear progression with Josh Allen through his first three years in the league. Went from being like a raw rookie with some flash plays to improving into his second year and then really taking the top off uh, and, and hitting really kind of towards his ceiling and probably his ceiling in his third year. And so as fans, we see that linear progression from the franchise quarterback and I think we expect, and we, maybe it's subconscious, but we accept, expect a kind of a linear progression towards the Super Bowl as well. So in our minds, I think a lot of fans will say, well, we made it to the AFC Championship game last year, so the next logical linear step is to go to the Super Bowl and, and try to win it. So we know things aren't linear in the NFL. We know there's ups and downs from season to season. We know every season's different. So I think it's hard to maybe separate the fact that we've seen such a linear trajectory from this team in the Josh Allen era to the fact that we do have some losses this year that maybe we wouldn't have had last year. It doesn't really equate to some in some people's minds, I think, because of that reason. Yeah, I think if we would have lost to the Colts or if we would have lost to the Ravens uh, last season, I think the expectations might not have been Super Bowl or bust or maybe if Josh Allen threw less touchdowns last year, um, you know, and he wasn't like one of the MVP front runners coming into the season. I mean, if you look at it, the only really awful loss on our schedule is the the Jacksonville Jaguars. The, the Indianapolis Colts are right there in the thick of the AFC race. The Tennessee Titans are currently the one seed in the AFC. You have uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers who, despite the fact that um, – their roster has so many massive flaws still somehow find ways to win football games and are also in the AFC playoff picture. We're not, we're not losing to, we're not losing other than the Jacksonville game to these bottom feeders. So if, if the expectations weren't so high going into the season, I think plenty of bills fans would just be like, all right, well, next time we play a competitive team, you know, let's, let's hopefully win this game or let's make sure it's a closer game. And I don't think it would be like sticking people's claws as much. They'd be like, yeah, we're beating up on the bottom feeders. So I know we're legit. But we just got to make sure that next time we go out against a, a, you know, a team that we're, you know, not punching down on that we might be punching up to or just equally punching that we are, you know, sticking in the game and maybe pulling a couple of these out. Like we're still going to we will still likely make the playoffs. And then once we get there, we can get hot. We can make a run. But because of everything that happened last year, you're losing to these teams that we see as inferior, even though they're still right in the thick of the AFC playoff picture. And they're pretty good teams in their own right. So what you're saying and what I hear you say is that expectations minus reality equals disappointment. That's what I'm hearing you say. Didn't want to steal your didn't want to steal your, <laughs> your line, man. All right. So one of the things we do at the Bruce Exclusive is we do plurality pie every week. And it's not just because I love plot. I love pie. I, I do love pie. Pie is amazing. I came home today and my wife had made apple pie. And she's going to try to keep me out of it until tomorrow. And She's got to sleep sometime, ladies and gentlemen. She's got to sleep sometime. At some point, she's got to have to sleep. And when that happens, I'll be up in the middle of the night with a fork in my underwear in front of the fridge eating some pie, and there's nothing anybody can do to stop it. And by the time she hears this podcast, it'll be too late because it'll be Thanksgiving morning, and I already have eaten pie. So, do you heat your apple pie? Sometimes, yes. I think I usually heat it more often if I'm going to put it with ice cream because I want the yes. temperature differential. I like that. So Pro move right there. We do plurality pie here. And I want to kind of pitch this to you, but not really in a percentage standpoint. I want you to rank these five people in order of their contribution to what we saw on Sunday. Whose fault is it the most to whose fault is it the least? And we're going to go the five biggest players in the Buffalo Bills organization that aren't Terry and Kim Bagula. Sean McDermott. Brandon Bean, Josh Allen, Leslie Frazier, Brian Dable. Rank them from most at fault to least at fault. Let's start with Steve. I'm actually going to go with number one here. I'm going to go with Brandon Bean, and I think it's because 
Obviously, the number one issue against the Indianapolis Colts was we couldn't stop the run. It is clear how important a one-tech is to this football team, and when Star Latule is not in there, our run defense looks a heck of a lot different than when he is in there, and it's not like they haven't had time to find an adequate replacement for Star Latule if he's ever out of the lineup. He missed all of last year. They were not certain he would come back um, You know, this year, at least at the start. They, they've had plenty of opportunities to go out there and find the um, the 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 player in waiting uh, to sit behind Starlo Tule, the guy to come in and give Starlo Tule a break so they can have two one techs. And the Buffalo Bills have made the decision like they looked at Vernon Butler last year, who was in it, not so many words, not great. And instead of cutting bait with that contract like they could have with Quinton Jefferson, they decided just because he's 315 pounds, just because he can and has the ability to clog up space with his frame, we're going to lock ourselves into his contract by restructuring him when they easily could have gotten out of it and gone after a, a street free agent one tech or drafted a guy in the middle rounds of the draft. So to me, Brandon Bean is number one, not only because he didn't find an adequate replacement for star or a guy to fill in for star when he's missing, but I mean, your third round draft pick uh, at right tackle, the guy who wasn't even supposed to start right away. He's the tone setter on your offensive line. You really miscalculated the depth and the players along your offensive line. If Spencer Brown is the one guy who makes the entire difference. So while it is the job of the coaches to adapt, while it is the job of the franchise quarterback to score a ton of points and mitigate all of that. You still, I think, number one, got to place it on Brandon Bean because it was clear that what happened on Sunday probably wouldn't have happened if Tremaine Emmons, Starla Tule, and Spencer Brown played in that football game. Number two, I had Leslie Frazier, and number three, I had Sean McDermott. They didn't have an answer um, for the Colts. I mean, Frank Reich's after the game, like, yeah, I made the decision once we were up 21 to seven that I just was going to run the ball on all first and second downs. Like they knew exactly what they could and could not get away with. They knew they could have whatever they wanted on the ground. And he called 16 of his next 17 plays runs. And the Buffalo Bills just had no answer for it. We obviously saw Sean McDermott make the some of the, the poor coaching decisions that he made in terms of kicking field goals. And then you had Josh Allen at number four trying way too much um his turnovers the lack of conversions on third down which led to that kick on fourth down uh just taking away points and then last but not least i had brian dable and i actually had a question for you bruce it seems to me like josh allen is just like he's holding on to the ball he's holding on the ball he's trying to find something downfield is it that there's is it there's no guys underneath is it are, are there no guys schemed underneath that he can just dump the ball off to and just take what he can get? Is Brian Dable sending all of these guys down the field or is Josh Allen just not taking what the defense has given him? I think that the Cole Beasley injury is a bigger deal than we think. I think that historically when Josh Allen needed to get in a rhythm and he needed to crack open the can, right? If that's what he needed to do, if he needed to crack open the defense, he could do it by using a pry bar that was short and blonde and is missing a front tooth. Like that was the method by which he could pry open the defense because historically you would do that by using the run game. Well, that's not going great. So what we had historically is you had a scenario where you could target Cole Beasley 10 or 11 times and you could force the defense to bring a safety down, not necessarily because they're trying to stop the run because you're just getting eaten up. There's too much space that you have created by keeping two safeties, 20 yards off the line of scrimmage. It's just too much. You have done, you've created too much room underneath where you have Cole Beasley lined up against a slot corner who he's going to shake free from. And he's going to shake free and shake free and shake free. Well, now you have to bracket him. Well, if you bracket him, now you're a man short. Now you have to bring the safety down. You bring the safety down. Now he beats you off the top. That's the way this works. It's a rock, paper, scissors scenario. And the bills don't have their rock. So the fact of the matter is people can keep throwing scissors all day long and the bills don't have their rock. I think the Cole Beasley injury is a bigger deal than we think. One of the reasons why I mentioned on social media not too long ago that I would be okay with tacking another year or two onto Cole Beasley's contract to lower his cap hit next year is because I think he's extremely important to this offense, especially given the fact that the traditional methods of being able to force you to bring a safety down into the box are not working for the Bills. The Bills are getting good run looks and they're failing against good run looks. So in the absence of that, you have to find a reason to have them to devote an additional defender down low. And you can't do it without either a run game 
or someone who can uncover in the short area. One of the things I'd like to start seeing, to be honest, is if Cole Beasley is going to continue to struggle, let's move Stefan Diggs into the slot and let's target him in the short area real, real fast. Let's use Stefan Diggs as Cole Beasley. I understand they're not exactly the same athletes, but let's use him as that. Bring Gabe Davis in and use him for the deep shot that you were previously going to line up Diggs at. So it'll be interesting to see. I think there's a possibility that Beasley's count starts to tick up a little bit this week. But for me, when I look at Josh Allen's scenario, it's that quick answer isn't there because the person who's supposed to be there to give him the quick answer isn't there. So who else you got? You got Bean. You got McDermott. Who's, who's next on the list for you, Steve? Oh, uh, well, I, I actually ran through my five. I went Bean. Oh, then I went Frazier. Uh, then I went McDermott, Allen, and Dable. So that those were okay. my five. <laughs> McDermott, Allen, Dable. That was what it was. I, I think I missed, I missed what was next. But Dave, you're five. Dable's at the last one. Allen's in the middle. Bean's at the top for Steve. By the way, you guys have not heard. I need you to vouch for me right now that you have not heard the opening monologue to Bruce Exclusive yet. Just have sign off on it. it. Have not because heard it. What you guys just said, what Steve just said, kind of has a little tone to it that people who have been listening to the show thus far today probably would have heard. I had a discussion about Brandon Bean, but Mr. David Tilton, what are your five? Yeah, and I'll also vouch that uh, Steve and I did not um, discuss this ahead of time. And I will say that for the most part, there are a lot of things that him and I agree on, but I'm actually kind of glad that we we differ here for sake of conversation. Um, for me, McDermott's number one. And the reason McDermott's number one for me is because of a culmination of kind of how this team has gone about their business the last two or three games, I would say. I mean, the Jets are obviously a dumpster fire. So winning that game, right, like is not, an, it, it's not a pat on the back for me to McDermott. Like that was something you absolutely had to do after that Jags game. So then coming into this Colts game, I mean, you had to have the, these guys ready. You had to know going in that this was going to be kind of a bad weather game. The Colts are a playoff team uh, or, or, or should be a playoff team this year. And the rhetoric coming out in the post game just screams to me the same type of stuff we used to hear during the drought era from those coaches. And I'm not saying McDermott's a drought era coach because he's obviously the best coach we've had in a long, long time. But the feeling I get from some of the comments after the game from McDermott rubs me in the way that feels like we used to hear from the likes of, you know, Dick Geron or, or, you know, Chan Gailey or, or Greg, whatever, whoever it was, right. It, it feels like that. And he didn't have these guys ready to play and he didn't have an answer where he could have made an executive decision on making some changes in game. On top of that, I will say some of the in-game management uh, questions, um, are starting to pop up more and more. Like, it's fine if you want to say, I'm going to trust my guys or I'm going to go for it on fourth down. And I'm going to do this and that. But you have to be aware of when that makes sense to do it during the games. And the, the decisions he made to kick field goals versus going for, like, it, it all came into question for me. So McDermott's number one. Frazier's number two right behind him with the defense because for me, um, those two really needed to they're they're the defensive guys right and the defense was cr clearly gashed in this game by Jonathan Taylor there was no real adjustment that i could tell made and maybe they couldn't right maybe they couldn't uh or maybe they tried to not, at least not from a personnel standpoint they didn't try to they left the same personnel on the field but it didn't seem like there was really a huge effort to kind of ch shake things up on the defensive side of the ball and because of the way the bills lost this game this is why i'm saying McDermott 1 and 2 allen's 3 for me the turnovers are obviously, um, I, I hate to use the word inexcusable because the first one was a little iffy, but like you just can't turn the ball over in a game like that when you have no momentum and you're really, you're, you're the $260 million quarterback. You have to be able to kind of pull your team out of the pit sometimes when things aren't going well and rally the troops. And it just didn't happen for Allen this game. Um, I mean, overall, if you look at, the body of work, you say, well, well, it wasn't such a horrible game, but the turnovers were killer and he didn't get a lot of help from his friends, obviously, but he's still the guy at the top of the, um, you know, of the heap as far as like shouldering the blame uh, when he had, when it comes to answering the question. So McDermott one, 
Frazier two, Allen three. I'm saying Bean four, and the reason I'm saying Bean's lower on my list than than Steve is because I'm going to create a narrative around games played that it's my narrative, so I'll create it. Right? Uh, you look at <laughs> I baseball. <laughs> I do what I want. Baseball 162 games. That would have that would have been the equivalent of about not any games in a baseball season. What happened on Sunday in the NBA 82 games? It was the equivalent of about four to five games. I'm not going to put a single game ish, like a single game anomaly, we'll call it, hopefully, on the GM. Because you go through ebbs and flows in a season. Like if an NBA team loses three or four games in a row, that's not typically going to cause you to be like, oh, well, this GM's got to go. If a baseball team in a 9, 10 game stretch loses like seven out of 10, it's not the end of their season. It's such a small microcosm of the big picture um, that. I'm not going to put team building and cap management and all these things that go into being the GM drafts and all this stuff into one game. I think it's unfair, but some of the points Steve made are valid. And I think are valid points in why we do need to question some things about what Brandon Bean has done, but I'm not necessarily going to put them pinpoint them on this game. And then finally five, I'll say Dayball. I think he's the least to blame for this game. I think actually in the first couple drives, he came out with some pretty nice creative game planning, um, and I think that the Bills just never had a chance offensively to really get in rhythm. They were playing from behind against a team that it's very difficult to, uh, I mean, it played right into the Colts' hands, right? Like, that was the game the Colts, from a game flow perspective, if they were going to draw up an ideal scenario, they would draw that up, and then, you know, the offense, the Bills' offense suffer from drops. I put out the stat today, seven drops in the game, per sports info solutions, the most they've had in a game since week one, when they had five and they hadn't had, those were the only two weeks all year. They've had more than two drops. So I'm not going to put really much on table for this one. So recap McDermott, one Frazier, two Allen, three Bean four Dayball five. I appreciate the recap. So you didn't go through them fast. And then I missed the fact that you actually added two on the end because I wasn't paying attention the way I should have been. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Dave, for not making me look like an idiot. Now, your level of concern as it relates to highly drafted defensive linemen not showing up in an impactful and splashy way yet. First off, would you agree with the premise before we even move on? That statement that highly drafted defensive linemen are not showing up in a splashy way yet. Would you agree with that statement before we even move on to the why we have to start with the what? So would you agree with that statement, Steve? Yeah, I would agree with that statement. Dave? Yes, agree. Okay. Epinesa, Rousseau, Basham. What is your level of concern with highly drafted defensive linemen not translating? I feel like the AJ Epinesa thing is like nobody's talking about it. Nobody's talking about it at all. <laughs> AJ Epinesa has been one of the quietest players on the team, aside from the Miami game early on. He's been one of the quietest defensive linemen on the team, and we're now in year two for him. So I know that we went through body recomposition. There were high expectations for AJ Epinesa coming into this year, and a lot of people, including myself, decided, okay, we got to give him a little bit of time because the body composition thing is a real, real significant thing. Like you've got to relearn how to play the game. We know this, right? Eric Turner from Cover One, your guys' new buddy. He did an entire video. I was part of it where we're talking about how you have to relearn how to do a lot of things when you go through body recomposition. But now here we are, and we're in season two now, still really quiet, right? Gregory Rousseau, again, rookie. Boogie Basham, inactive most of the time. Here are your four options. Highly concerned, somewhat concerned, somewhat unconcerned, or highly unconcerned. What is your level of concern around the highly drafted defensive lineman not translating in a splashy way yet? Let's go with Dave. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to, I'm really trying to rein myself in here. I said somewhat unconcerned. And the reason I said that is because of the body composition thing with AJ Epinesa. And I'll kind of like give him a, I know he's in year two, but we'll say like maybe he's in year one and a half, right? Because of that. And I also think that the way the Bills approach the like 
I, I do think the way the Bills approach the rotation, maybe it sometimes has a negative effect. And Steve has made this point uh, a couple of times, right? Like, are these guys earning these rotate? Are, are they earning their spot in this rotation, or is it just a given? And there's a, maybe there's a lack of incentive that some of these guys have. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily the case with the younger guys, but the fact of the matter is, is Epinesa reshaped his body and he's been pretty quiet this year. Basham, like you said, Bruce, has been an inactive. You sat there in the second round. He fell to you. You drafted him after you just took another defensive end in the first round in Gregory Rousseau, who has probably been the splashiest, who has been the splashiest player of the three so far this year. And he's been in Basham's been inactive for many games. So what's the long play here, right? Um, we saw the long play somewhat with Epinesa last year, and obviously the body issue had something to do with that. But now what's the long play with Basham here? When is he going to get playing time this year? What's his role on this team? And then Rousseau, you know, he's had a couple splashy plays. Like he made that nice interception against the Chiefs. And we know um, he's had like a decent statistical year for a rookie. And so Rousseau kind of brings the entire group up a notch, I would say. He like brings the, the waiting up, if you will. But he's like really doing his damnness to try to bring the entire group with him. And... Um, and that's why I said somewhat unconcerned because I think for me with Rousseau, I really didn't know what to expect from him as a rotational guy this year. I was hoping for maybe a, a few sacks Basham, I thought would play a bigger role, maybe in run defense than anything. I wasn't expecting a big sack total or anything from him, but he really hasn't had a chance to show that. And then Epinesa has had a few moments, right. But hasn't really stood out. I'm willing to say somewhat unconcerned just because I think that it's a combination of lack of playing time and a lack of really experience, right? This at this point in their careers, the bigger concern for me is like on the coaching side, I think than it is on the play on the, and the, on the actual players. So obviously coaching will have a big effect on these players, but the players in a vacuum, I guess I'm less concerned with than maybe how the coaches end up developing them. And I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So that's how I landed on this sort of, uh, I guess, somewhat unconcerned rating. Steve, where do you fall? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to echo what Dave said. I'm going to say I'm somewhat unconcerned. So I think that with the, 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 the three main guys, you have to sort of break it apart. Obviously, if there was someone you were going to be concerned about, it would obviously be AJ Epinesa heading into uh, his second season. But we also have to, again, factor in that body, uh, you know, recomposition. He's still learning to play the position at a new weight. I mean, his weight loss was absolutely massive. I believe Matthew Fairburn wrote an article for The Athletic that said he was down into the 240s. Like, that's really bad. Like, that's not great. I don't know what effect COVID had on that, but he, like, not having, like, um you know, the the NFL work workout room, dietitian, et cetera, et cetera, like, how he got into the 240s, I have no idea. Um, but he's still working his way back up. Does he have Rousseau, who right now, sort of his athleticism and his long arms and his physical attributes are carrying him, uh, and he missed an entire year of football last year because of COVID. And then you have Carlos Basham, who when he was drafted, made comments pre-draft. Yeah, I kind of see myself as a five tech, 280 pounds. If you're the Buffalo Bills, like what exactly are you doing with him in practice every day? Is he playing inside the three tech? Is he switching outside to end? Is he getting in a rhythm anywhere? Are you asking him to cut weight like you asked AJ Epinesa to, run, to, to cut weight? So you're not 100% sure how the Buffalo Bills truly are developing these guys. And then it gets to the, the game day touches right? You have veterans in Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison that obviously still, obviously still need to get their snap share. You have now Gregory Rousseau, AJ Vanessa, Boogie Basham, who you feel like you need to work in. And I look at that and I'm just like, being a defensive end, it, it's an art form. I mean, you could probably speak to this better than me. It is truly mano y mano. You are reading the guy now going back and forth, you know, punch, counter punch. You are trying to get a feel for what this, there's only so much of a feel you can get watching film. Once you start going up against a guy mano y mano, you can start reading him in the game. When you're playing 44% of the snaps, when you're playing 33% of the snaps, when you're playing 31% of the snaps, are you really getting the same competitive advantage that like a Bosa brother is playing 70, 80% of the snaps or the um, starting edge defenders elsewhere around the football league that are getting 70, 80% of the snaps also have something to do with it. So really my concern is somewhat unconcerned, but 
it's going to turn into somewhat concerned and highly concerning next year because the safety blanket goes away in 2022. Jerry Hughes's contract is up. Mario Addison's contract is up. F.A. Obata's contract is up. We could be looking at a situation in 2022 where A.J. Epinesa is your starting right end. Gregory Rousseau is your starting left end. Boogie Basham is your rotational edge defender. And you maybe bring in a guy to be your fourth defensive end or Mike Love is your fourth defensive end or you re-sign F.A. Obata. It could be that these guys are just thrown in the deep end next year and told go out there and it's not going to be a bigger rotation. So when they start to get a higher snap share, that I think is when I'll start to get concerned. But right now, you got to maybe question, is the room too crowded to develop these guys properly? Are there too many veterans to get them the snaps on the football field? You, you got to start to question how we're developing these guys, and that's concerning. But I'm also not too concerned because I was high on all three of these guys in the pre-draft process, and I like all of their ceilings as defensive ends in the National Football League. So for me, when I look at this, I almost think that each individual one, as you mentioned, needs to be done differently. There needs to be a different clock that starts at different times for each one. I almost look at it for the musically inclined among us. It is like a round. You know, if you ever did a round with row, row, row your boat, the first guy says row, row, row your boat. And then the second time he starts to say row, 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 the other guy says row, row, row your boat. And each time you have somebody join in and around, that person starts at a different time, but they also end at a different time. And so the narrative for each one of their clocks is different. And I think that the first one, as you mentioned, that we should be talking about is AJ Epinesa. I think that's the first one. And at some point then, the level of concern comes back around to not just people you were drafted. So Quentin Jefferson is playing pretty solidly in Las Vegas this year. Vernon Butler is not doing well here. Is it more than just acquisition to the draft at this point? At some point, Eric Washington's name is going to come up. That's going to happen. When you've invested significant resources in the positions of defensive line, Ed Oliver, AJ Epinesa, Gregory Rousseau, Boogie Basham, when you've invested significant resources and you've entrusted those resources to Eric Washington, at some point, the name is going to come up. They're either picking players who don't develop or they're not developing players they pick. Those are the two potential outcomes if you don't get what you want. Do you have thoughts on Eric Washington? Let's start with Steve. I don't I don't I don't think it's so much on thoughts as Eric Washington, so much as like thoughts on the defense as a whole, Leslie Frazier, Brandon Bean, just the roster construction in general. Because if you look at it, you obviously have two defensive tackle positions. You got your one tech and you got your three tech. Star Latulale is your finger quotes alpha one tech and you have ed oliver who's your finger quotes alpha three tech and then it seems like behind them they are content with like guys who can do a little bit of both but not do anything great and i question whether that's the greatest roster construction behind star latulale should be another one tech whether it's a free agent or a guy you draft in the middle rounds and behind ed oliver should be another one tech or I'm sorry, another three tech in a guy like Quentin Jefferson. If the Buffalo Bills had gone into this uh, season and they had Starla Tulele as their starting one tech and Ed Oliver as their starting three tech, they had gone out in free agency and signed a, you know, a veteran 330 pound defensive tackle and like Corey Peters, they had retained Quentin Jefferson to sit behind Ed Oliver and then they kept Justin Zimmer. You have a situation where when Latulale comes out, you have another bigger, beefier, 330-pound guy in Corey Peters who uh, has proven in this league that he, unlike Vernon Butler, that he can go out there and do his job. Behind Ed Oliver, you have another guy who can wreak just as much havoc into the back, into the offensive backfield in Quinton Jefferson. Quinton Jefferson had done it before when he was in Seattle. The issue that Ed Oliver had last year, you see him playing better this year, and the issue that Quinton Jefferson had last year is they were playing one tech because we had no one tech on the roster. Quinton Jefferson even said on Instagram on his way out the door, they're like, what did you expect me to do? I was playing one tech. So I'm looking at it just from a schematical and a common sense and a roster stamp construction standpoint, and I'm like, what the hell are they doing with this defensive tackle rotation? What the hell are they doing in terms of their roster construction? Because quite frankly, it just doesn't make sense to me. Dave, where you at? I mean, I echo a lot of those same thoughts. And part of me thinks about when I think about the rock roster construction and who are the Bills asking to contribute on this defensive line as main and primary contributors. And we talked about... You know, Basham aside, Rousseau and Epinesa are intended to be main contributors. I, Ed Oliver, obviously, but they're also asking Mario Addison and Jerry Hughes 
to be primary contributors. And what I see here is a situation where you have extremely young, raw players, maybe not so much Epinesa, but still raw, raw, like really he's played a year and a half. And again, we talk about the body thing. And then you have these guys who are in the twilights of their careers and Hughes and, and Addison. And I wonder if a guy like a Vern, uh, Quentin Jefferson, who's now in Vegas, who is kind of that middle ground, relatively young, not in the twilight of his career, but still a veteran. If a guy like that playing in the right position would have been valuable to this team this year. So to me, it's a combination of where are they lining guys up? Where, what are they asking guys to do? We talked, you know, Steve talked about like, what are they asking Basham to do in practice? Like what are, what is their vision for the line? And I'm struggling to kind of see the vision right now, because in a way I can say, okay, Hughes and Addison are in the twilight of their careers. Rousseau, Epinesa, you know, these are the, these are kind of the, the guys who are going to take the reins. But then when you think about in the year 2021, what we're asking these guys to do and what we expect this defense to be, you're basically going on either end of the extreme, right? You have the super, super young guys, and then you have the, the super like twilight of their career guys. You don't really have that in between. And I think that's also an issue. So it's a combination, I think, of what Steve said with like maybe people playing out of position or what position are you asking guys to play, but also like it, it is kind of a dynamic thing as well, I think, with the guys they have in the locker room. So and that and I'm again I'm talking about the primary contributors. I know Vernon Butler's only 27, but again, like I'm not counting on him to be a primary long-term contributor to this line. Harrison Phillips, I don't know. He's a free agent after this year, right? So if you think about who they're asking to play a lot of snaps. That's an interesting dynamic to me. And I feel like we are missing that Quentin Jefferson type playing in the right position. Well, folks, we didn't get to everything that we wanted to get to, but we got to a lot of it. And for now, you might be wondering why I didn't get your emails. Well, I, you can blame Steve and Dave. They're the reason I didn't get your emails is because they do such a good job over at the cover one air raid hour that I had to bring them on as a guest during the season. And then that bumps out the time that I have for the emails. So if you're wondering, where's my plurality pie? Where are my emails? Don't blame me. It's not me. It's their, it's their fault. And if you want to take it up with them personally, then you can go see them in the pregame show on the cover one network. And they can do that. In addition, you guys got other stuff coming up during the week. Dave, Steve, why don't you guys tell us where we can find you guys, where you're at, where they can get more of their work. Steve, start with you. Yeah, you could find me on Twitter at Judge Mathis, and you can also find us uh, the Air Raid Hour uh, on Twitter at the Bills Guys. That was the name of our show before we got the old C and D from the Buffalo Bills. But uh, yeah, every every pregame. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast on Thursday morning at uh, at uh, seven fifteen, we will be going live on the Cover One Sports Network doing our pregame before the Saints game on Thanksgiving, and then you can also catch us. Monday nights live on the cover one sports network at 9 PM for the, uh, the air raid hour game reaction edition. So that's where you could find the show. And that's where you could find me on social media. Dave, where can they find you? Yeah. At tilt money on Twitter. Um, that's where I primarily interact with most of the, uh, other bills, um, followers and other content creators. As Steve mentioned, we do the pregames. Um, that's obviously kind of dependent on when the games are. And then we always have our normal Monday shows, 9 PM live. That's no different than where we were before. We're still in that same time slot with the cover one guys. And um, we, you know, we talked a lot tonight about roster construction and things like that. That's kind of a, one of the main things we like to discuss on an ongoing basis. So you'll hear more of that if you tune into us. And obviously we're going to be live for you before the Saints game on Thursday. So grab a turkey leg. Get in your get in your recliner, turn on the TV, and uh, and tune in. Even if you're even if you need the nap before the Bills game, just make sure you go to YouTube, go to the Air Raid Hour, turn on the pregame, and then fall asleep. Just make sure that you turn the pregame on before you fall asleep. Sure. Uh, maybe hit the like button too, uh, yeah. and that would really help us out. Right? Yeah. Just maybe you could use you guys as like an alarm at the very end of your show. Just you could make some sort of ridiculous noise. And I'm like, okay, I'm awake. I'm awake. It's it's, it's time. It's time. Instead of hitting the snooze button, hit the air raid hour, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll play that theme song nice and loud right at the end of the podcast. Yeah, wake everybody so. up. Folks, thanks so much for joining us. And you 
Dave, Steve, thank you so much for being a part of it. I really appreciate it. For those of you out there who are upset by either the monologue that you heard at the beginning of this podcast, or by the fact that I didn't get a chance to do plurality pie, or by the fact that the podcast ran a little longer than usual, or the fact that we didn't get to emails, I got only one thing to say to you. That's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.